3: Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Folta.
1: And here we go, another week of Talking Biotech. Um, Yep, I'm Kevin Folta. Um, Today I'm joined in Talking Biotech with our guest co-host, Amira, who's coming to us from southern Florida. Hi, Amira.
4: Hello. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. Yeah, thank you for joining us.
4: My pleasure.
1: Yeah, and Amira, I've uh, I've known Amira because she uh, is uh, someone who really enjoys science Quite a bit, and I met her originally at, what was it, uh, Darwin Day or Sagan Day, one of the...
4: One of those, yep.
1: And uh, I was, think I was giving a talk at, at, um, at uh, I don't remember, I think it was the one in November, which might be Sagan Day, I think that was that one, but I've been down there a few yep. times, so.
4: Yes, it was a great day, and since then, we've been in contact, and um, I'm learning about that, uh, about biotech, so.
1: Yeah, and so Amira does is probably one of the... Has one of the cooler jobs on the planet. She's a chef. Um, She uh, works on, well, oftentimes on boats and travels the world cooking for people um, all over the planet, which is really cool. So, What else did I leave out about your job that you think is really interesting?
4: Um, Well, that's pretty much it. I work on a private yacht, and um, I get to learn about different cultures, different people, different foods, and um, it's a lot of fun. And it's a great way to uh, learn about the world.
1: Well, I'm so glad that I met you. That When I get down to South Florida, I come by and say hi. Last time we had fun. That was, that was a pretty cool night. We you know, had a good dinner and went <laughs> visit, <laughs> visited that one place, which you know, Amira knows some locations of some great dives in South Florida. That's for sure.
4: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was voted the bar that you should never take your good friends to. I think it won that two years in a row.
1: I well, I I guess that shows how I rank. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I it's one of those things where you don't take your you don't take your good friends, but you take there's certain people you really trust that that you know would share the appreciation for such places.
4: Yes, I agree.
1: <laughs> but we're here today to talk about um a real problem that's happening in the United States right now and a biotech solution. Just as kind of a precursor, you're going to tell us a little bit about the current problem that's happening. What's our topic?
4: Well, we're talking about the the newest avian flu, bird flu outbreak. It's led to the death and culling of at least 45 million birds, which is huge. And uh, they're working on a vaccine, but the problem is that the USDA wouldn 't approve uh, the latest vaccine because its effectiveness rate is only sixty percent, and they have a fear that when the export industry when the countries who import American uh, poultry test the u s poultry it can it can cause a problem because the uh, the test for the disease look for the same antibodies that vaccines trigger an animal to produce. So it it puts the USDA in a difficult position. It wants to protect the exports, uh, but it also wants to stop the virus. There haven't been any humans who've contracted this avian flu yet, but it's a big concern because there are uh, thousands and thousands of people who work with poultry and in poultry processing. The last big outbreak, there were cases in China and Asia and Africa and it's a growing concern. Uh, The CDC uh, considers the chance of human infection low, but people who work with the birds or have close contact with their contaminated environments may have a greater risk. Um, It's also caused a lot of damage for the poultry industry. About 10% of the supply has been impacted uh, by the bird flu, and food suppliers are paying a lot more for eggs Uh, There's a huge industry in uh, breakers, which is pre-mixed eggs, either whites, yellows, or whole eggs. And uh, the suppliers are having to charge 100% more for breakers, which is huge. And um, they are suggesting that their buyers, like restaurants and hotels, lower the amount of eggs on the menus. And 90% of the eggs taken out of production were meant for the breaker market. Also, regular whole eggs are, uh, are going up in price. So I'd say that uh, the outbreak is of great concern, both to the domestic poultry market and the $2 billion poultry export market, seeing as the exports have already dipped 10.7% in quantity hmm. and 7.1% in value. And that's just in the first four months of 2015.
1: Wow. Wow yeah that's and and the solution doesn't seem like a real practical one they're talking about 45 million chickens uh euthanized how would you possibly immunize uh you know and 10% you know billions of chickens exactly and so that 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 you know that's a long day um, so this is really sets up an important problem for us to think about because it does spread from bird to bird, but there's transmission to other animals, uh, jumps to mammals, it has you know, cows, pigs, um, humans. And so the, the bird flu issue really is a major problem that is increasing here in the United States. And this recent outbreak is, is really a, a reminder that we need some practical solutions. And this is maybe a good place for a biotech solution. And so today we're really lucky to be able to speak with Professor Helen Sang from uh, the Roslin Institute at the University of Edinburgh, and, and she was on the research team uh, that uh, developed the approach of using a genetic engineering solution to stop the transmission of this particular virus from bird to bird, and did this work in collaboration with a group from University of Cambridge. And the original work was published in the journal Science in 2011. And recently, it's really enjoyed a revival in, its, in, in, in revisiting that work because of the avian flu outbreaks here in the States that have killed, as Amira just mentioned, millions of captive birds. So to learn more about the avian flu and this biotech solution, uh, we welcome uh, Professor Helen Tseng. So welcome to Talking Biotech.
5: Thank you very much.
1: So one of the things I like to start out with, the critics will say that biotechnology and scientists, that they were walking around with a tool without a, a good problem to solve. And I think this is a, a really important problem to address. So what is the avian flu problem?
5: The the, the problem of avian influenzas is uh, present in wild birds all the time. Not in every country. Uh, for example, in Europe, we have very rare outbreaks of bird flu. But uh, certainly in Southeast Asia, is uh, a disease that is present in wild water birds. Uh, they're not very badly affected by the disease, but they shed lots of virus that then um, poultry can pick up. So it's not a disease that will ever go away. And my understanding is that the outbreak in the U.S. is because bird flu has got into migratory birds uh, and they're transmitting it up and down the country uh, during migration periods. It's not going to go away.
4: What are the current strategies used to curb bird flu in captive high-density bird populations?
5: So the main strategies that are in use at the moment are to um, run uh, biosecure units so that to to try and uh, avoid the opportunity for the disease that's present in the environment uh, due to it being endemic in wild birds, to try and stop it being transferred in to the chickens or the other poultry. Uh, of course, um, birds that are housed outside will be exposed to the disease. Uh, and the other way is to develop vaccines. There's a lot of work going into trying to develop a more effective vaccine that really stops uh, bird flu. In But there are a lot of issues with vaccines. If they don't completely protect against the disease, you can drive evolution of the flu virus which as we know for humans, the virus is always changing. The same is true for bird flu. Um, and then you've also got to get, distribute the vaccine and it's also got to be applied properly for it to be effective.
1: And that's really a, a considerable problem because just the cost alone of immunizing so many birds really adds a level of complexity to this particular problem. And so what does your approach do and uh, how, how does that work? So the
5: the approach I'm taking with Lawrence Tiley, my collaborator, is to introduce what are completely novel genes into the chicken that will just try and stop it in making a productive infection, making an individual bird sick and also resulting in spread of the flu virus. And uh, Lawrence is a a virologist, so he knows a huge amount about uh, the flu virus. Our aim is to um, take the in-depth knowledge of the virus and try and use that to uh, engineer uh, resistance. So to, to go into more detail, um, what uh, Lawrence suggested was that we express a, a small RNA molecule that we call a decoy RNA that mimics uh, the structure of the flu virus genome. Uh, and the flu virus has a genome that's made up of RNA molecules, uh, and there are eight segments of RNA and the structure of those segments is the same, but each one has a different gene in its segment. Uh, and basically, if you express the common sequence that is required for copying those segments of the genome, either it's required to make copies so that you make more virus, but also so that you make the gene products of the virus. If you express this small sequence thats that is common to all the eight segments of the flu virus genome, Uh, you will titrate away, you will uh, soak up the flu virus enzyme, the polymerase, which is required for the flu virus to copy itself and to have a productive infection.
1: I see. So just to kind of distill that down, the flu virus to replicate will sequester specific proteins that, that are required to make more of itself. And what you're doing is you're adding a benign RNA, an RNA that does not promote the pathogenicity of this virus, that now takes away the polymerase, the required enzyme, and gives it an, another target. And if it's busy over there working on something that's not infectious, then it's not busy replicating the pathogenic virus. Do I have that right?
5: That's correct, yes. That's, that's the uh, approach. And this was uh, shown some, uh, some time ago uh, in 1997. There was a paper published sort of exemplifying this approach, but just in cells and culture. Um, And what we've done is to take it and introduce it into chickens, into into birds. And uh, another interesting thing about this uh, small decoy RNA is that it's it's not a stable molecule. So unless you have the flu enzyme, the flu polymerase present, this molecule degrades very quickly. It's stabilized by the presence of that uh, enzyme that replicates, copies the flu virus genome.
1: And being a small RNA, does it excite any of the other, um, is it a double-stranded RNA or single-stranded?
5: It's double-stranded with a loop in between the double-stranded regions, so it has the sequence at each end is complementary, so it folds back on itself.
1: And just a, as maybe a technical aside, does that stimulate any of the um, RNA interference mechanisms that the cell possesses to maybe enhance the turnover of the viral RNA or target the viral actual viral RNA?
5: Not, not that we know. No, I think a lot of people think because we are making a small RNA that we that's what we're using is we're hijacking the RNA interference system, and and we're not doing that with this particular molecule.
4: How specific is the technology to the strain? Here in the States, we have uh, current outbreaks of H5N2 and H5N8. Would it work?
5: Yes, so the expectation is that it would work um, because the sequences that we're expressing are, uh, because they're uh, extremely, they're absolutely required for the flu virus to copy itself, they're highly conserved. So we think of flu as changing all the time. But it's not all the sequences that change all the time. It's uh, mainly this, the hemagglutinin and neuro, neuraminidase, the two coat protein of the flu virus that keep changing because they're the ones that are exposed to the, the host's immune system, either the bird or the human. So these sequences uh, are not uh, different between strains. So th- they make them a, a very nice target uh, for uh looking to see if we can hijack those sequences because they they don't vary and the, and in fact they're the same in uh, for example swine flu so we could use this approach
4: uh in in pigs as well and uh, as i understand it these birds are not immune to the virus they they get the bird flu and die but don't transmit is that correct the, the birds did get flu
5: when, when they were challenged with uh, H5N1 flu virus, which, as you probably know, is one of the most uh, vicious strains of flu. But the, their transmission of the flu virus was much reduced, but it wasn't completely uh, removed. So, you know, we were on mark one, I would say. We're approaching mark two uh, in this, uh, exploiting this uh, design of a transgene to uh, block influenza infection.
1: Well, that's what's exciting about your approach: is that you have this uh, um, uh, something that transcends the identity of specific proteins or specific, you know, like like a vaccine approach, and that this idea of siphoning away a common replication requiring element is really good. What other types of viruses or or pathogens could a similar approach uh, be used with?
5: A lot depends on a detail of the virus. Structure and of its life cycle and how it replicates in the cell. So there, I think there are some of the viruses that you could look at to take this approach. But I, d- I do think that um, if we're going to use genetic modification to uh, combat viral diseases, we have to recognise that these diseases evolve, and if you block them, they you are effectively selecting for change in the in the virus. So whatever approach we need, we would use we would have to uh, model how effective it would be to block the virus for a long time uh, and think about having different transgenes so that we would maybe use one form of decoy for a few years and then cycle in a different version or a different completely different uh, GM approach because it's, it's no different from the problem with vaccines in that Vaccines are effective for a while, and the virus changes, and the vaccine is no longer effective, so you have to keep changing the vaccine
1: yeah or, or multiple versions of the decoy, perhaps Not or much. different different versions that would be slightly different, so that if there's a evolution around say like maybe a really low binding affinity towards the one variant, you might have it binding very well to a different one. Um, and uh, it's, this is, it, it, I appreciate that you brought that up because it really reminds us that none of our remedies are permanent and that nature finds a way to sneak around what we, our best efforts. So
5: Yes, absolutely. So that would need to be recognized. I think, you know, we're very early days of using genetic modification to confer resistance. Um, but in a way we have already selected in the wild in that um wild water birds ducks seem to be much less susceptible to be to the uh, pathogenic effects of uh, avian influenza but they do host the virus and they shed a lot of virus so uh, another approach is uh, that's being undertaken by geneticists is to look at the difference in the genetics of ducks and chickens see if they can identify specific genes or or forms of genes in ducks, which uh, make them less uh, susceptible to the pathogenesis of flu. And we could consider, if they identify genes that protect ducks, we could uh, use genetic modification to transfer those into chickens.
4: So um, it seems that the technology is pretty solid at this time. It stops a disease from spreading. Uh, it stops animals suffering, it could help limit transmission to humans is there a, re- a reason why it hasn't been commercialised and uh, what are the barriers to commercialization? I
5: think of uh, the project that Lawrence and I have done so far really is a to raise the profile and the whole discussion forum for using genetic modification to confer resistance to a disease that's uh in terms of avian influenza it's commercially important uh if you have avian influenza like you have in the US at the moment it's a, it's devastating uh commercial egg producers in the midwest uh it, it's a huge animal welfare issue because there are all these chickens being slaughtered uh it's a potential human health problem as well because of we know that bird flu goes from chickens to humans but commercialization of our project uh, hasn't happened yet uh, and I think we would need to develop it a lot further before it was worth commercializing. But it's a bit of a catch-22. Uh, it's not being picked up on it in a big way because people think that uh, GM chickens won't be accepted for as a food. So a lot of the time I get people saying, well, it's never going to be acceptable, is it? Of course, that's in Europe particularly. But uh, in the U.S. even, there's no GM animals being licensed for food yet. We can't uh, drive it further, uh, faster and on a larger scale than we've been operating so far. So we've been operating on um, research grants which are limited in their scope and scale. And I think a lot of it is because of this problem. Okay, this looks quite interesting. It's valuable to take it a bit further further but there's not real confidence that it would ever be taken up uh, and the breeding companies are very concerned uh, about getting involved in genetic modification that if they were involved uh, in a big way in gm that they uh, could get uh, blackballed you know that they would uh, their all their products would be seen with suspicion so i think it's uh, it's a uh, public confidence but also uh, a breeder and
1: producer confidence. We we see a very similar thing in plant biology where we have solutions to problems that we can't implement because we have industries that say we can't do this because if we do it, people will boycott our products. Let's just keep going with the fungicides and insecticides because we don't want to have a GM solution that would eliminate fungicide and insecticide. Yes. And in your case, I I, I read about... Landfills that will not take the dump trucks of chicken carcasses because they're uh, because they're afraid of the the disease that you have clearly an animal welfare issue that sick animals in a high density situation uh, animal suffering increases you have higher costs for consumers. The fact that your technology would seem to me to be an application for the developing world either for small farmers or even, you know, for larger operations, they can't afford to immunize or, you know, or they do immunize. That's their approach. That's all they've got. They don't have the same biosecurity type of uh, infrastructure that we have. So it seemed like this would help the developing world. It would help the industrialized world consumer and also would be an animal welfare issue. So it seems like nothing but good from my perspective. and, and, And it's a shame that it doesn't look like it's on the immediate horizon.
5: Yes, I, I quite agree. I, I mean, I've become more and more convinced <laughs> since, since we started this project that actually it is something that has potential value and we haven't got as far as I would have liked to really demonstrate that value because we're constrained by the rather tentative approach to the whole uh, possibility of using genetic modification. And, and it, it all gets uh, muddled up with other issues, political issues, as uh, For example, in Europe, (coughs) uh, we have the Soil Association, which uh, regulates organic food (coughs) products and uh, Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace. uh, And they are very uh, against use of genetic modification. But a lot of the reasons, as far as I can make out, are not to do with what the genetic modification is or what the risk of that GM change is. <clears throat> but more to do with protecting uh small scale farming organic farming and uh, uh concerns about multinational companies controlling the source of our foods and of course there may be concerns about that but you shouldn't use gm as the the weapon seems that the the the, the wrong battles are being fought
1: And I think that's an increasing synthesis. I think we see this more and more as scientists, because I'm in the same boat you are. I really want to get up in the morning and solve a problem. And when I come up with a solution that I can't use, there's a certain frustration there. And to me, I think a chicken that does not transmit this virus, here's an opportunity to eliminate a high-density farming situation, which many groups are opposed to. Um, to allow free range chickens to do what they're going to do without the uh, possibility of uh, transmitting the infection. It just seems like uh, such a win-win for Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth that this seems like a technology they should be getting behind.
5: I, I would like to see us moving on to particularly chickens, because chickens are the most acceptable for the most widest range of people, the most cost efficient. Uh, the the best in terms of uh, utilisation of food. And uh, if we stopped eating cows altogether, <laughs> I think the human race wouldn't suffer. But chickens are, are so useful and can be farmed on all sorts of scales that we should be, be thinking about using genetic modification to help protect those birds and, and uh, the farmers and the products.
4: Well, I was wondering... About the technology and and can it be applied to other viruses that affect domestic animals and what what might they be? I think
5: uh, I've sort of been disappointed actually that since uh, Lawrence and my paper our paper was published that we haven't had more scientists coming along saying I work on this disease and uh, I think that we could try and block infection of this virus by uh, expressing uh, a molecule like this. Uh, you know, We'd like to try that out. And I think they're cons- constrained by the fact that they don't think it'll ever be used. Um, but there, there is interest certainly in other uh, farm animal species and, and also we're moving on. I think the debate is moving on because uh, we're, we're, genetics is also moving on and finding out a lot more useful information so that we can develop further approaches to genetic and transgenic disease resistance
1: so have you have from a communication standpoint helen have you found a, a particular way that that an audience really responds to like what are the what's the what's your magic way to get an audience excited and engaged and maybe even changing their mind on this technology
5: I think this is, uh, you have to work uh, in lots of different ways and one of the things that Lawrence and I did was right at the beginning of this project before we'd actually started, <coughs> Lawrence talked publicly about the ideas and although that's possibly uh, caused problems in uh, filing intellectual property protection, it's been very good in that we've never uh, hidden what we're doing. We've always talked about it and we talk in... Lots of different fora, so a lot of open meetings. Um, Here at the Roslin Institute we have an annual open day and we always have something about genetic modification of farm animals. I think the important thing is your approach. It's not to say what we're doing is right and you should accept it. It's to explain what you're doing and what your motivation is and and, and actually go into the detail of what it's all about, what we're doing in the lab, to demystify it Uh, and then... You know with the expectation that you know that you're expecting people to make their own minds up and not to telling them what their minds should be uh, and uh, I certainly find that that's an approach that's appreciated and people will engage more in thinking about what we're doing
1: I think you hit the nail on the head um, at as, some as a guy who went out and told people that I'm right here's what i uh, here's the way you have to think about this and if you don't think about it you're crazy um, and I did that for years, and I didn't change a whole lot of hearts and minds. And that now, really, we're learning that by talking to people about what are the things you care about, you know you care about uh, having eggs, you care about uh, chicken welfare, animal welfare. Do you care about farmers in the developing world being able to feed their families, when you start talking about these levels of the things we all care about, whether it's, you know, Kevin Folta sitting here in Florida, or you know Helen Sang in uh, in the UK, or uh, or a Greenpeace executive in their cubicle somewhere. This is those things that we all agree on. So I think you really do uh, did frame that very nicely.
4: Thank you. I could say as a layman, uh, with all the years that I've been listening to um, information coming from all sides and not really knowing how to how to separate fact from fiction. I think that people are far more accepting because of what's happening, changes in biotechnology, simply because there is more information uh, and people know how to look for information. This was probably my biggest issue, was figuring out what is reliable data and what is unreliable data. And uh, I had to take that journey on my own. And I have to say that uh, nowadays, it's uh, the people around me, I can see that they're far more open to the idea that biotechnology can save millions and, and feed billions. And it's a very positive uh, step, in my opinion, as a person who's not a scientist, that I see people are understanding what genetics have to, available for food in the world.
1: And Helen, is there any place where people who are interested can read more about the project?
4: We have
5: information on the Roslyn Institute website. I do quite a lot of talks and all sorts of different sorts of talks and uh, Lawrence does and uh, other colleagues. I don't blog, <laughs> maybe I should, uh, and that's maybe something we should look at.
1: I think so. It's, if we're not there talking about what we do and why it's important, someone else is there talking about why we don't do something useful and that it's not important. So we have to take, take control of that space.
5: Yes, and I think uh, it's very important that it's the scientists themselves. This really came uh, uh, over to me when uh, I I kicked off our first Open Day a few years ago, our annual Open Day, and uh, when we asked people for feedback on the way out. The most important thing to people was talking to scientists, and we had at least 80 staff and students in that day. And I don't think it's the same if you hire a PR company or something to talk about what you're doing. It's got to be the scientists themselves who, who engage with the, the people who are paying the taxes that pay for the grants and so on. So I think that's really important.
1: Well, that's an excellent way for us to conclude. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. It was a, a wonderful conversation that I learned a lot. And uh, I look forward to future developments from uh, you and Dr. Tiley. So, best wishes to you and your research groups and hope to talk to you soon. Okay, thank you very much. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. Dr. Our Professor Helen Sang at uh, the Roslyn Institute in Edinburgh, Scotland, at the University of Edinburgh, uh, talking about the innovations in genetically modified chickens that prevent avian flu spread.
3: What can you do to help spread science through Talking Biotech? Our goal is to advance discovery to application with communication, ensuring the best technology reaches farmers, consumers, the environment, and the needy. Talking Biotech Podcast is 100% funded by the Kevin Volta Family Vacation Budget, and no contributions or advertisers will be solicited or accepted. What you can do is kindly take a few minutes and write a short review of this podcast on iTunes, tell a friend, or scratch TalkingBiotechPodcast.com into a bathroom stall at Chipotle. If you have any questions, send them to TalkingBiotech at gmail.com or through Twitter at TalkingBiotech. Podcast dedicated to these important issues is long overdue. your assistance can help others find helpful information will accelerate research and bring innovative solutions to those that need them
1: and welcome back to talking biotech and the amazing plant stories and in this section of the podcast we talk about a, a plant you're very familiar with or, or an item or a crop you're very familiar with and discuss the backstory the amazing story that we don't know, where it came from, what's there in its rich history, and today we have uh, a really exciting opportunity to probe something we're all very familiar with, uh, yet has a history that most of us don't know. And uh, we're lucky to have an expert from the uh, USDA in Madison, Wisconsin, who's also a faculty member at the University of Wisconsin Horticulture Department, and uh, please welcome Dr. David Spooner. Hi, Dr. Spooner.
2: How are
1: you doing, Kevin? Uh, doing well, and thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, today the topic is, um, if you haven't guessed, potatoes. And a lot of folks don't realize Madison is really a major potato state. Or not Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> um, so, Dr. Spooner, could, so could you tell us a little bit about where the potato originated? Where is, it, uh, where is its center of origin, and what do we know about early cultivation by humans?
2: Really, there's a couple major questions when you talk about uh, potato domestication and origins. One major question is where did the land races originate? The land races are indigenous cultivars. Um, and when you look at the present day distribution of these land races, there's two major centers. One center is in south central Chile around the uh, Chonos Archipelago, the series of islands just south of uh, Puerto Montt. And then there's another major area, it's kind of hard to call it a center, but it's this broad swath of land all the way from uh, Western Venezuela down through Ecuador, Colombia, Peru, into uh, Bolivia, and into Northern Argentina. And those are upland potatoes uh, occurring maybe from 3,000 to 3,500 meters. And then the Chilean potatoes are uh, lowland varieties. And uh, they differ by a number of traits. Uh, one of the traits is morphological differences. They're, they're kind of hard to tell apart, but they, they differ in the shape of the leaves and the, the way the leaves are Uh, the angle of the leaves from the stem. They also differ in various physiological traits such as day length adaptation. Uh, But between these areas is this large break of about 600 kilometers. So there's two major areas where land races occur today. And one of the big questions always arose, where did the European potato come from? Because it's a logical question. Uh, they differ morphologically and physiologically. But then, as I say, another question is, where did the, you know, what are the wild species progenitors and the place of origin of potato in general?
1: That's interesting. And I, I guess I could jump ahead to molecular evidence that could help dissect that, but I, I think I'm going to stick in the potato antiquity for a few minutes. What do we know about early cultivation and maybe the, the first times it was brought under human control?
2: Um, There are fossil evidences of potato from uh, dry caves in uh, Peru. And um, I should have that information at hand, but maybe 6,000 years ago and somewhat less, uh, you can find potato remains in Peru. Uh, There's also remains of potato in Chile. Peruvian remains are 6,000 years old and younger, but there's remains of potato, it's uh, potato skins, were found at this archaeological site called Monteverdi, and that's about 13,500 years ago. Uh, Fossil evidence dates potato having been cultivated at least back that far.
1: That's really cool, because that means it's one of our older crops.
2: That's right, Yes.
1: I think a lot of people don't appreciate is the incredible diversity among wild potatoes. So we're so used to this monolithic Burbank russet potato. And can you tell us a little bit about the range of diversity, maybe in size and colors, and what one would expect if they were to examine the wild populations?
2: Sure. Um, really, there's two major classes of potato. There's the wild species. And uh, my latest treatment recognizes somewhat over 100 species of those. But then, then there's the, the land races. So uh, when, you, when you're talking about the range of colors and shapes, uh, perhaps you're talking about these land race potatoes that are very colorful and have a variety of shapes. Uh, there are thousands of, of those things, maybe 3,000 different types that have been documented um, and they range in colors, both skin colors and flesh colors, from kind of uh, very light tan to pinkish to, to light to deep purple. And the shapes of these land races vary from what you might think of a typical round oval potato all the way to potatoes that are uh, just kind of long and sometimes very curled. And the land races sometimes have very characteristic uh, big bumps on them and deep eyes. And uh, there's various uh, collages of land race diversity uh, that have been made. And it it really makes for a fascinating artistic piece just to look at the huge range of of, uh, color and shape diversity in these land race potatoes. The wild species are, they're a little more drab. Sometimes they're, they're relatively small, only the size of a pea. And really, uh, nobody eats the wild species because the majority of them have high levels of glycoalkaloids. It's, uh, it is likely a protective chemical. in uh, And I never really ate any of the wild species until once I was in Argentina, And there was this potato that was bright orange. I was collecting with a potato scientist there, Andrea Clausen. And uh, we were on horseback and were going up this mountain through this wooded area. And we didn't see any potato. And there was a major hard uh, rainstorm going on. And when we came back down the mountain, all of the tubers were exposed. And there were these bright orange uh tubers and I thought, boy, what does one of those things taste like? And I just took just the tiniest piece and and uh chewed on it and my throat swelled up and I had a hard time breathing. So, you know, it's a good thing I didn't take a big a big mouthful of that stuff. And perhaps those glycoalkaloids were in a very concentrated amount there, but you know, people don't eat the wild potatoes because they're relatively unpalatable. And yet they're uh, you might ask the question, well, then why do we collect them? And they have tremendous uh, characters that improve the disease resistance and agronomic traits of our cultivated potato.
1: And maybe we could go to that as the next question. So we think about what breeders are doing today. I guess the, uh, so some of the major breeding or one of the major potato diseases. So we think about. Um, the potato famine and the phytophthora and other, uh, and other p- diseases of potato, that there are natural sources of resistance. Could you tell us a little bit about those sources and how they're being bred back into modern potatoes?
2: Uh, absolutely. I'm I'm not a potato breeder, but uh, go to these genetic meetings and know basically what happens. There's two major ways in which uh, these genes are being put into potato. One is by Making a sexual cross and then having a series of reciprocal back crosses in uh, a large selection scheme, so that you can get back to the cultivated type, but uh, breed out the the wild characteristics such as glycoalkaloids or small shapes or long stolons, and that's really been the traditional method of breeding potatoes. Um, but then another method is by uh, transgenic methods where you identify the gene, um, you insert just that very small part of the gene into the cultivated potato, and voila, you've got a, a potentially, a, um, you know, the cultivated type just with that trait you want. And one excellent example of that, if there's, a, there's a wild species, Selenum bulbocustanum, from Mexico and Guatemala this species, as well as some other species, have very uh, tremendous resistance to late blight, that uh, disease you mentioned, probably the, the most important potato disease worldwide. And the genetic, you know, the gene that codes for late blight has been identified, and transgenic potatoes have been made that give tremendous resistance to this disease. So Uh, Those are the two major methods, both traditional breeding methods and uh, more modern transgenic methods that have been used to incorporate these uh, disease-resistance genes. But late blight is only one of the many diseases that infect our potatoes. One of the major things that's done, every year the USDA gives grants for screening the wild species. So we, we look at the publicly available germplasm. And uh, they grow them out, and by a series of tests that are appropriate for that disease, uh, they will challenge those wild species, or maybe uh, various land races, and uh, look at those particular accessions or collections that are resistant to that disease. So um, these... Uh, Various disease resistances aren't just known, but they're actually being actively investigated. And then all of these data are publicly available. They're put on the USDA germplasm resources information system or the GRIN system. And uh, potato breeders worldwide have access to these data that give them entrees into the utility of many of our uh, publicly available germplasm collections.
1: That's a really great resource because as a breeder, you don't have to, eliminates that necessity to obtain all that germplasm and perform the screens yourself. So that's a
2: really nice resource. It's not just diseases, various agronomic traits such as frost resistance or drought resistance. Breeders might avoid those because it takes a huge amount of effort to incorporate those diseases into uh, useful germplasm. And so... The USDA and potato and in other crops um, hires pre-breeders that uh, their job is to uh, do a series of hybridizations that try and make those disease resistances useful to the breeder, to go through those initial steps that make those, like I'm just repeating myself, but those initial steps that incorporate that disease resistance. And Actually, here in this department, another USDA researcher, Shelly Jansky, that that's what she does, uh, uh, you know, in her program.
1: Yeah, that's actually, and, and that's was something I was hoping to touch on here, was even once you understand the uh, resistance that's available in a wild accession or in a population of wild plants, incorporating that into elite germplasm or into, you know, modern varieties, takes uh, and is al- is so difficult in potatoes because of a very complicated genome and genetics. And maybe the best testament of this is that the Burbank russet potato, the major potato of, uh, of, of at least food service and many areas of commerce, is uh, m- probably going on 140 years old. And uh, it still is is a potato of choice in many ways. Could you tell us a little bit about that and about maybe Luther Burbank and how he came about finding that potato?
2: Apparently, that was a somatic mutation that was found in a field and it was uh, selected. You know, it's fascinating that that story on on the uh, Burbank potato, because when breeders make new varieties, they have to have a variety that is better than the pre-existing varieties. Now, my understanding, and again, I'm not a breeder, is that there are better potatoes than russet Burbank that have the the Burbank traits of that russet skin and the long shape that is very useful for making fries. And yet, um, again, I hope I'm getting this correct. The, um, The industry has put a huge amount of effort into, number one, knowing how to grow that potato, but also how to, how to uh, store and process that potato. So when major food companies fry potatoes, they have all of their equipment that's set up just specifically the right kind of oil, the right kind of temperatures, the, the timing to process that potato. And if you try and incorporate a new variety, you've got to change the equipment that potato is, is still very useful, but it has uh, various problems that have been overcome with better potatoes. But because of the, the integration of the growing and the storage and the processing and the preparation of that potato, it's hard to introduce a new variety um, that will overcome, uh, you know, that will replace it.
1: Well, that said, doesn't it in a way make potato an optimum system for a biotech improvement because it allows you to maintain the same sort of uh, general standards with respect to processing, storage, and in uh, cooking, and maybe just get one more agronomic trait that really benefits the plant pr- or the product production in, on the farm.
2: Well, I would certainly think so, and I think a lot of my my colleagues would agree to that. One example is the incorporation of the late blight gene uh, in Solanum bulbocastanum and other wild species into modern cultivars. When you look at the methods that are needed to grow potatoes in areas that are infected by late blight, not only in the United States and in uh, years where late blight uh, is a big concern, but also in in um, in areas where potato is grown for a subsistence crop, say in the Andes, every four to seven days you have to spray pesticides in order to to keep this crop alive. And uh, when I've been in the Andes, you see just uh, mists of of uh, fungicides being. Sprayed over the field, oftentimes by applicators who really don't have any any uh, protective equipment. But there's also big environmental concerns, and I always thought that the the discovery and the incorporation of late blight resistance into our modern cultivars would be a big discovery that would make the acceptance of transgenics acceptable because it would it would have that that uh, environmental trait that would make them accepted, but uh, apparently that has not yet occurred.
1: That's a good point, and we see this in a number of crops now, and whether you're talking about citrus diseases here in Florida that are desperate for a remedy, where there are transgenic solutions, I think these are areas where we will see very strong breakthroughs in acceptance. So can you tell me about the origin of the land races, and maybe compare that to the origin of the European potatoes?
2: As I mentioned before, so there's these two geographic regions where where land-raised potatoes occur today. A basic question of, of phylogenist is what's the origin of these species? And there's been two major competing hypotheses. One hypothesis is that there were two separate origins because when you look at the potatoes from these two regions, They differ by a number of traits, the two biggest ones being morphology. So the potatoes from Chile have wider leaflets, and they're held at a wider angle from the stem, and they also have a different day-length adaptation. They tuberize under long days, as you would imagine, because you've got longer days in that area. And then the the Andean potatoes, uh, in the higher elevations, they... Uh, have short-day adaptation, and they have generally narrower leaves. So, these two (laughs) groups of potatoes differing morphologically and physiologically, uh, the natural question is, where did they originate? And the Russian researchers, uh, led by uh, Joseph Zouk and Bukasov, indicated, or they proposed that the Andean potatoes originated from native Andean species, and that the Chilean potatoes originated from native Chilean species. So the uh, origin of the uh, land races has always been a big question. And um, one of the ways in which we investigated that is to have extracted the DNA of these uh, representative subsets or accessions or collections of these Land races, and then compare it to the wild species. And indeed, what we found was that the origin of potato was from the Andean group, and we were able to narrow it down to southern Chile, and uh, just getting into northern Bolivia, in a group of wild species called the Selena Brebicale complex. That was published maybe 10 years ago, and we did that with a, with a molecular marker called AFLPs, and so we were able to narrow down what were the wild species progenitors, number one, and what was the place of origination, southern Peru and in northern Bolivia. Then the other major question is realizing, again, that you've got these two areas where potato occur, what was the... Um, uh, site of introduction in our European potato, and this has been a fascinating story. Again, the Russian scientists that I just mentioned, and Hawks and Simons, they proposed that the uh, that the uh, European potato came from the uh, the high Andes, and the Russians from Chile. The reason that the uh, Russians said it came from Chile, is that our modern cultivars have the leaf type and the day length adaptation to the Chilean potato. It was purely logical. And yet the Russian scientists proposed an Andean origin uh, for two reasons. Number one, when they looked at herbarium specimens, the early pressed collections of some of the earliest cultivars, they said they have the narrow leaves of of the Andean potatoes, and they proposed that the day-length adaptation was selected over a period of generations. And they pointed out that potato uh, really wasn't consumed as a food crop uh, until sometime after, at least the wide acceptance, sometime after the early introductions. Um, Now, there was a... uh, a Japanese researcher today works at Calby Potato Company in Japan, and he pointed out that these two land race groups differ by a very convenient uh, deletion in the chloroplast DNA. It's a 241 base pair deletion. And what we were able to do to investigate the earliest introduction of, of uh, potato. Was to extract DNA from herbarium specimens that dated back all the way to 1700 and then went uh, all the way to uh, 1910. That was a, a paper done by a student of mine, Mercedes Ames. We finally had direct evidence through uh, extracting DNA from herbarium specimens and using this uh, convenient marker by that. Uh, Japanese researcher, and what we found is that, indeed, the earliest introduction of potato were the Andean types, but as early as 1811, the uh, Chilean types were introduced and became the predominant type way before uh, the 1850s, when much of the potato was eliminated uh, throughout Europe uh, by these late-blade epidemics, the the uh, Irish potato famine. And why is 1850 important? That date is important because the English researchers suggested that the um, introduction of Chilean germplasm only came in after the elimination of potato during these late-blade late epidemics. And yet, um, through this direct evidence of uh, these molecular evidences, we were able to show that, Indeed, the Chilean potato is a a predominant form way before the late blight epidemic. So clearly, our potato grown worldwide today is from the Chilean, not the Andean forms. That doesn't in any way put down the importance of the Andean potato, because they still have tremendous use for breeding, and indeed many of the genes uh, that improve our potato today come from the Andean types. So those molecular studies have been very useful in order to trace the origin of the land races and then subsequently the um, origin and domestication of our potato in Europe.
1: And that's, uh, in, by, by modern standards, AFLPs and a chloroplast fragment are a little bit, uh, are, you know, they certainly they do work, but this is compared to today's resolution where you can sequence genomes. I, I know the potato genome was sequenced as one of the first ones that was completed, but uh, is there a, is there a mo- major sequencing effort now to further enhance the understanding of domestication or many of these land races?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I'm not part of that project right now, but I have colleagues who are working uh, with uh, people at and Agricultural University who uh, were the leaders in the sequencing of the first potato genome, and uh, there is massive resequencing effort going on in order to check out those results and to kind of expand the whole data set and questions relative to the origin of potato. You know, I'm almost 66 years old at a time when many people would think of retiring, but uh, the next generation sequencing data has just opened up an entirely new era of science, and I intend to keep going for a long time. It's many of the questions that I was not able to answer before. I have data now uh, with collaborators here and uh, the University of Wisconsin, in order to to just answer questions that were never even uh, possible to answer before,
1: and that's a, and that 's really just in a time frame of ten years. You can imagine what we 'll see in the next ten the newer long molecular read data that really take us out of the the hazards of assembling molecules in silico. Uh, they give us the opportunity to actually read whole molecules now, whole RNA molecules, and long stretches of DNA. And certainly University of Wisconsin has been at the cutting edge of development of, of many of the, like the optical sequencing technologies and some of the things you do up there. Uh really is exciting to look forward to the future. And I'm, I'm glad you're not going to retire and keep going. <laughs> yeah thank you yeah it's uh it's uh it's i think it's a sentiment shared by many scientists I work with in my department that they get into the retirement mode uh under a human resources um uh you know mandate or, or opportunity and then realize this is just getting fun and we're just getting really good at this so so uh, that really does give us a good glimpse into the potato and its uh, origins and cultivation, some of the traits that are of high use and potential for today's potato breeders and potato improvement. And so I thank Dr. David Spooner, who is, um, uh, and thank you so much for spending the time with us today.
2: Thank you so much, Kevin.
1: And that concludes another week of Talking Biotech. I thank our guests and thank you for listening. Uh, my name is Kevin Fulta, and I really appreciate that you're listening to Talking Biotech, and tell a friend to listen to. Uh, write a review on uh, on iTunes or on Stitcher or where you hear this podcast. In uh, Growing this audience is really a great way for us to teach more people about where their food comes from, to appreciate what's on their plate, and to thank those who have played a role in its farming or in its harvest. And thank you again. Uh, Next week, we'll be back on Talking Biotech.
3: Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science.